1: Yes, it is. And welcome back. Thursday, January 13th, 2022. A little bit more common sense seems to be seeping in. We have my producer Bill back in the producer's chair. Welcome back, Bill. We have a lot to do today. I had a really, (laughs) I have to tell you, a uh, a monologue for you. All right, whatever. I thought it was really good. I went into a lot of stuff here. I was working on it since last night. And then, of course, the Supreme Court decision came down today. And uh, I figured I would ad lib and and, uh, dedicate uh, much of this show to what transpired at the Supreme Court today. So we will have with us our, of course, Robert Jackson constitutional scholar, Brett Johnson. Jonathan Tobin will be joining us as well. He had a column in the New York Post a couple of days ago. And uh, Arizona State uh, Attorney General Mark Burnovich will be joining us, too. Uh, For those that may not know, by the way, I have to tell you, I um. I usually almost exclusively in the car listen to this station when i 'm driving around. I might change it a little bit on a commercial break, um, but today uh, I, I i was ch- I changed it uh, just to see how other stations were handling the Supreme Court decision that uh, vindicated most american workers' um, uh, individual rights and most corporations property rights. I will um Tell you, so I turned, I wanted to see what uh, NPR was saying. And, uh, Kate, uh, K, whatever it is. NPR has an affiliate here. <laughs> okay. I'm not in the business of giving out their call letters. And, uh, they were just doing, uh, all BBC stuff on the Sudan and, you know, important, I'm sure. But, uh, boy, if you listened, uh, if you turned into the local NPR affiliate today, you would not know. That individual rights were vindicated by a six to three vote into the Supreme Court. Remember that number six to three, because I want to circle back to it. Bill, remind me if I don't. Let me give you Paul Miringoff's summary. I think it's the most concise if you're just getting the news. By a six to three vote, the Supreme Court has stopped. The U.S. Supreme Court has stopped the Biden administration's vaccination or testing requirement on large American employers. That is to say, companies that employ 100 people or more. The majority doubted the existence of legal authority for the sweeping mandate. You can guess who the six were. You can guess who the three were. The three were Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. Sotomayor has a lot to answer for. We'll do that with Jonathan Tobin. The court did, however, it is true, allow to remain in place in a second decision the administration's Requirement of vaccinations for most health care workers at facilities that receive Medicaid and Medicare. And that case vote was five to four, just by one vote, uh, because uh, Justices Roberts and uh, Kavanaugh sided with Breyer and um, uh, Sotomayor and uh, Kagan. So we lost Roberts and Kavanaugh on that one. I want to come back to that. This is part of that 6-3 thing, Bill, I want you to remind me of if I miss it. OK, I'm putting that on you. I apologize. Uh, uh, in in the uh, employer mandate case, uh, Justice Gorsuch, Neil Gorsuch, wrote a concurrence joined by Alito and Thomas. Gorsuch's concurrence declares that the power to respond to the pandemic Rests with the states and Congress, not an administrative agency. No one knows who heads or who voted for. Um, and he cites something called the major questions doctrine, which is something we'll run by uh, Brett uh, Johnson when uh, he joins us uh, later in the hour. Uh, Paul Maringoff, who's, I think, a very keen observer of things legal, worked in a big uh, uh, big law firm in D.C. for many years and uh, did a lot of federal litigation, uh, My quick reading of the opinions, he writes, didn't reveal substantive disagreement on the surface, anyway, among the six justices in the majority of the main case. There was clearly a divergence in approaches amongst the six uh, judges in the justices in the vaccination for healthcare workers case. Um, The two cases, this this will be worth thinking about going forward. The two cases, the way they came out today, confirm. That Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh now constitute the Supreme Court's center. Think of them as your Justice uh, Anthony Kennedy and perhaps Sandra Day O'Connor, if you will. Uh, Those were the two that anyone who litigated before the Supreme Court – I had the privilege of working for someone who litigated a lot before the Supreme Court. Anyone who litigates before the Supreme Court is often thinking, how do I get the Kennedy and O'Connor vote? How do I win them over? Not a great way to do law. It's how we do it. Um, Let me make a point real quickly on the 6-3 so I can unburden Bill (laughs) of having to remind me about the point I wanted to make. Joe Biden put out a statement today. We'll get to that in a moment. But it will be natural for you to see and it will be natural for you to hear, because this is the world we live in, that the striking down and stopping of the mandate, the employer vaccination mandate, will be uh, criticized and dismissed by many on the left as the work of conservatives and the right wing on the Supreme Court. This will be uh, something akin to what Chuck Schumer said about them in in, uh, inheriting the whirlwind uh, if they Vote wrong when he named the names of Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. The point being they are going to politicize the outcome of this decision. They are going to say that was a right wing. This is what happens when you get conservatives. We live under a conservative court that is going to change all our liberties. To which I say then be careful because how do you justify the second decision? If Roberts and Kavanaugh's vote was important to the 6-3 and it was otherwise you wouldn't have had a majority then why are they not also wrong on the 5-4 one of their votes of 2 needed and necessary to get the majority there why is that you can't have both things be true you can't say this is a victory and a and a um, and a decision an opinion made by right-wing justices or conservative justices who don't care about public health or anything else, if you are willing to concede that they came out the right way in your worldview on the second decision. Because the two that were necessary for the majority in the first were also the two that were necessary in the majority for the second. So the liberals better beware. And by the way, while I'm at it, If you want to condemn those conservatives and right-wingers who came out and made our life a living virus hell by a vote of six to three, keep in mind those are the same justices, the same ones, at least in John Roberts' case, that kept Obamacare constitutional. So the left had better figure out their talking points here, at least philosophically and morally. If they want to condemn this as a right wing decision, because there's an awful lot of things that they approve of that got these guys voting for them as well. Kavanaugh, the same when it came to the Planned Parenthood case. So I don't want to hear anything about this is the business and this is the work and this is the uh, this is the um, the receipts being in from right wing uh, presidents and right wing Mitch McConnell or conservative Trump and conservative McConnell or conservative Bush and conservative McConnell. No, you accept the Supreme Court decisions for being valid. And we will see. We will see how many lefties understand this point. I don't know if they will. Today, Joe Biden said in a statement... As a result of the court's decision, it is now up to states and individual employers to determine whether to make their workplaces as safe as possible for employees and whether their businesses will be safe for consumers during the pandemic by requiring employees to take the simple and effective step of getting vaccinated. Do that again. As a result of the court's decision, it is now up to states and individual employers to determine whether to make their workplaces as safe as possible for employees. No, it isn't. No, it isn't a result of today's decision. It was a result of all American history up until Joe Biden decided he was going to interfere with the constitutional and legal rights of individuals who just want to go and work so that they can pay their bills. It's not as a result of the Supreme Court's decision. Joe Biden's order was the aberration. We never thought this could be constitutional. No one ever thought this could be constitutional. That's why it had never been done before. Do you understand that point? It had never has never been a national or, excuse me, a federally mandated vaccination order from the U.S. government. Never, never that affected private businesses, private employers and reached in. It is not as a result of the Supreme Court's decision. We wouldn't have had to have gone through this litigation if Joe Biden didn't disrupt the constitutional order in the first place. And what's this snide business about it up to states and individuals to determine whether to make their workplaces as safe as possible? Do you think they don't want that? Does he think, unless it's he ordering it, that states and individuals are going to walk around being unsafe deliberately so? This is the paternalism we live under. Boy, that. That music came fast. I have a lot more. Stay with me. We'll get right to it. Also, the number 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson show. Let me um, let me just talk to you for a moment, if I can, about the nature of the unconstitutionality of what Joe Biden did. We can go to the language of the Supreme Court and there's some good language. But let me talk to you about the nature of it for just a moment. You don't hear a lot of talk about this, but it's not only the prog- the problem of progressivism, But it's the problem of the administrative state. That was the technical term a few political scientists came up with to describe governance by bureaucracy, governance by the unelected. And perhaps probably the – yes, I think probably the first scholar to uh, fix his eyes on this and uh, has probably written more books on this than any other – is uh, John Marini of the uh, Claremont Institute and the University of uh, Nevada, along with his co-author uh, Ken Masugi, who is often on this show. Uh, interesting side note about those two. Um, they have collaborated on these issues for years, at first starting as assistants to Clarence Thomas, when he was the head of the EEOC under Ronald Reagan, the rise of the administrative state. Um, let me do this chronologically uh, as uh, best I can with just a few things to keep in mind. And it's the notion that we are governed by, yes, an ever growing bureaucracy and an ever growing government, to be sure. But in and of itself, we can understand that that's a problem. But in and of itself, we have to also understand. This is what every thinker at the founding of our country actually worried about, actually worried about this. You've heard Dennis Prager talk about the smaller the, gover- the bigger the government, the smaller the man. This, this, it's a nice formulation, and it has its grounding and its basis, not just in our concerns about, you know, the heavy hand of government or you know uh the all 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 omnipotent government it has its origins in the story of individual liberty and the founding of this country in federalist 51 1787 i guess yeah 1787 by james madison he writes in a single republic all the power surrendered by the people is submitted to the administration of a single government and the usurpations of the government are guarded against by the division of the government into distinct and separate departments, the separation of powers. So many of us think we live in, and the Constitution guarantees that we live in, and the founders told us that we lived in a constitutional republic under a Republican form of government. That includes the separation of powers, wherein Congress and the judiciary would keep in check their concerns about an all-too-powerful executive which bloats, which builds, which grows, and in so doing curtails, constrains, constrains, and stints individual liberties and individual rights. This was not just a concern of Madison's in a one-off in Federalist uh, 51 he said much the same in Federalist 47 the accumulation excuse me the accumulation of all powers legislative executive and ju- judiciary in the same hands whether of one a few or many and whether hereditary self-appointed or elective may justly be pronounced the very definition of tyranny, the accumulation of power in the same hands. And a big part of this uh, litigation, a big part of this litigation had to do with whether an agency of the government, in this case, OSHA, also known as the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, whether they were given the powers by Congress to do this. They were a creature of Congress. Could they do this? Did Congress give them that power? The answer, of course, was no. That means then that they cannot arrogate unto themselves the power to do anything they want in the absence of congressional approval. You will recall just the other day, I think it was um, that we, who was I talking to? I think it was a listener caller. I think it was a listener caller about, you know, how Justices in the Supreme Court have viewed these kinds of things, and I took him back to the steel seizure case under Harry Truman, known the case known as uh, Youngstown Sheet and Metal versus Sawyer, Youngstown Tube and Metal versus Sawyer, the Youngstown case, wherein Robert Jackson, after whom Brett Johnson is named, where uh, Robert Jackson spoke about the various uh, limits and legitimacies of power and authority given to a president by Congress. It's where he said that the legitimacy of an order comes through descending authorizations. The most power that is legitimate is when Congress expressly, gives the president authority to do something, and he does it. Second are cases in which Congress has been silent and the president takes authority in the absence of congressional saying, the Congress saying, yay or nay, Jackson called that a zone of twilight. But then there's the other, which is the president defying congressional authority and congressional orders, and he called that a... Third category. Um, How did he put it? He put it. I have it here somewhere. Right. First, when the president acts pursuant to an express or implied act of Congress, his authority is at its maximum, for it includes all that he possesses in his own right, plus all that Congress can delegate. Second, when the president acts in absence of either a congressional grant or denial of authority, he can only rely upon his own independent powers. But there is a zone of twilight in which he and Congress may have concurrent authority or in which its distribution is uncertain. In such a circumstance, presidential authority can derive support from congressional inertia, indifference or quiescence. Congress was never given the chance here. Or they were given the chance for two years and never acted on it and never delegated that authority. Zone of twilight leaning towards unconstitutionality. Zone of twilight leaning towards unconstitutionality. President Biden had nearly a year to ask Congress to give him this power. He didn't and they didn't. Trump before had the power for a year to ask Congress to give him this authority. He didn't and they didn't. That zone of twilight looks an awful lot more in this instance under Robert Jackson's criteria as leaning more towards the morning for individual rights and less like sundown for individual rights. Perfectly reasonable way to look at it. That's what the Supreme Court did. It wasn't just Madison who was worried about this. There were others, two particularly from another country, Who perhaps understand us as often is the case better than we understand ourselves. Stay tuned and you'll hear from me on that as well. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602508. 0960. Um That song, Colin Baton Rouge, that was written by Dennis Lind. And uh, it's not necessarily a name you would know, but I just I'm always curious when I hear great songs that I love. He, by the way, uh, wrote Burnin' Love for Elvis Presley. I just think that's fun. You know, if you find a songwriter who did one song you like, you might want to check out what else they've written and what else they've done. Tina is in Star Valley. Hello, Tina.
2: Greetings, sir. I am thrilled by the decision. Yes. Um, although we're all we're all sad about the healthcare workers, but I'm sure you know this: uh, that any time a federal dollar touches anything, the Supreme's already ruled that uh, the federal government has jurisdiction, and so the the, ho- the uh, hospitals are you know federally linked. And uh, the licenses are federally linked. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but Title 42, Section 666, was called the <laughs> deadbeat dad law. In, I know.
1: <laughs> I don't know. To be more scared, scared of Title 42 or the three sixes. Okay. All right. I know well, them both. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah.
2: Obviously, somebody's bad joke. Yeah, right. Right. Right, the right. dad law that put all the licenses uh, attached to Social Security numbers, uh, you know, with the the ostensible good uh, intention of, you know, collecting child support. But, oh, well, you know. There you, you know, are. one of the interesting, so. thank
1: you for that. You know, one of the interesting things, I heard comment on this today, and I need to validate it, but I heard it from a pretty good source. Uh, I think it was Jonathan Turley. I respect his work uh, over at George Washington University, professor of law. He said one of the interesting things about the second decision, uh, the, the health care worker decision, uh, the one we didn't really love, um, he said one of the interesting things about that that seemed to move Justice Roberts was that the healthcare industry didn't push back against that order. Well, and if that's well, true, shame know, on them, and you know, well, they'll get what they deserve. Shame on them,
2: but many did. Many people did. Did they and, file you know, briefs? I, he, his
1: point was they didn't uh, make no, an argument. Yeah. His argument was they yeah, didn't. Not. I mean, yes, the health care yeah, frontline yeah. workers did, of course, but uh, yeah. the corporations, yeah. uh, they were just happy to say, govern me, rule me, tell me what to do. Shame on them.
2: Yeah. Gov- govern me harder, Daddy.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah.
2: Um, I got a piece t- today from uh That could a, be a, f- a bumper friend. sticker.
1: I, oh, my gosh. Govern yeah, me Yeah. I know. Yeah. Oh, I
2: think it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you, I know, are familiar with the odious Woodrow Wilson, yes, and uh, and his uh, expansion of the presidential, uh, you know, the, the imperial presidency. Yes, and he is quoted as having said that the a president is free, quote, to be as big a man as he can. His capacity will set the limit, and if Congress is be overboard by him, it will be no fault of the makers of the Constitution. It will be from no lack of constitutional powers on its part, but only because the President has the nation behind him, yeah. and the Congress has not.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This was, uh, I think, this was in his textbook, wasn't it? One of his textbooks that he wrote on constitutional government. I, I, that sounds like it's coming from there. If you want to yeah. find. The beginning of the descent of America from uh, the beginning of the 20th century forward, you start with Woodrow Wilson. It was That's that right. kind of I thought know. it was his uh, decimation of the in, of the Declaration of Independence, which he said the preamble mm-hmm. was basically meaningless it 's up for each generation to choose for itself yeah. you know this kind of right. stuff. Um, And, of course, he, of course, is also one who resegregated Washington, D.C. and showed KKK movies in the White House. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this this Democratic hero is, well, a Democratic hero.
2: Oh, a Democrat. Imagine that.
1: Imagine that. Imagine that.
2: Right. So, you know, this could be. The you know the beginning of awareness. I mean, my the the guy who wrote this piece that I and I'll see if I can forward it to you because I think you'd like it. Um, this could be the the beginning of people understanding that the imperial presidency really is uh, not in the Constitution and needs to be limited by people enforcing the Constitution.
1: Look, um, I, you know, I hope it's a teachable moment. Um, I hope we can use it as a teachable moment. It feels – I'm going to have Brett Johnson joining us in a few moments so we can return to the politics of this. But it feels a little bit like tides are turning our way. And I'm always cautious and I always want to issue notes of caution. We celebrate just a little too early. Let's take the victory. Let's use it as an instruction, not as a checkered flag. We'll be right back. That's kind of the music you want, at least on the first decision the Supreme Court (laughs) handed down today. And the second one, I think, I think, I think is a little better than it's being pitched or cast. But we go to our Robert Jackson fellow in constitutional studies, Brett W. Johnson, the law firm of Snell and Wilmer uh, to help us distill this uh, repeat performance two days in a row. Uh, We need you, Brett. How are you, sir? Thanks for doing it.
3: Oh, thank you, Seth. And I, I think my brain's about to explode. <laughs> I feel like I'm getting ready for uh, my own oral argument reading these two briefs.
1: I'm here for <laughs> you. We're going to make you feel better. This is the Dr. Seth Show. Let's not let your brain explode. Vent. What's on your mind, brother?
3: Well, you know, very interesting, and and, and just as a, a repeat for your the, the Supreme Court took these cases for oral, oral argument uh, last week. There were two cases, one in regard to the what we call the employer mandate. Mm-hmm. If you had more than 100 employees, um, the, the Biden administration through OSHA was saying that you had to uh, have vaccinations or discharge those employees. The other one, um, also through the Department of Health and Human Services, but actually through what's called the Center for Medical um, Services, the CMS, um, Medicaid, um Medicare and Medicaid Services, let's put it that way, um, they issued a mandate a few months ago, which was also uh, challenged by the states of Missouri and Louisiana. Arizona was also part of that um, case, which basically said all health care workers um, had to get vaccinated. So in the first one, the 100-plus mandate, the, the Supreme Court um, determined that that was not um, a stay was in order because more likely than not, um, the the plaintiffs in that case would would win, and then in the other case in regard to the healthcare uh, vaccine mandate, um, the court determined that more likely than not uh, the plaintiffs would lose, lose the case. And so because of that on a, on a five four ruling, um, that mandate that vaccine mandate for healthcare workers will be going forward. The vaccine mandate for uh, employers of hundred employees or more. Uh, will not be going forward. Both cases, though, will be going back down to the trial court level, and you'll you know have the, the continuing litigation. But quite honestly, if I was a counsel on either either of these cases, it's pretty much a done
1: deal. Yeah, that's what I thought too. Pretty much a done deal. Is it fair? This will be crude. Uh, a crude question for you, Brett, and thank you for that. But this will be crude. Is it fair to say in the healthcare workers in the healthcare employment uh, scenario? A big part of this had to do with you're kind of tying yourselves to the federal government's funding, and they get a little bit more or a lot more say once you accept that when you're going through organizations like Medicare and Medicaid.
3: Absolutely. And we've talked about the case before. It's actually a South Dakota case, which basically said, hey, we don't want to raise our drinking age to 21. We want to leave it at age 18. And then the Department of Transportation said, well, you're not getting freeway money. Um and, and the courts upheld that and said, Listen, if you're taking the Fed's money, you gotta take uh you know, you gotta listen to what they're saying in relation to that money. Same issue happened on what was called the Solomon Amendment. Right. Very well off universities didn't want recruiters on campus. Right. Well, if you don't want the military recruiters right. on campus, don't take the government's yeah, money. Yeah, yeah. So but it's also a little bit more nuanced yeah. than that, That, in the sense that um under the health care mandate, what the court went through is is that the the agency actually checked the box right? It it had done this previously outside of the COVID context. There was a rational basis for it in the sense of healthcare workers um, needing the vaccine so that they can continue to work as well as not make patients sick. And then that was the tie into the money because the government's paying for those patients healthcare. And that would just only increase the expense to the government. They also identified the national guard being called out to help out the hospitals, so they basically went through the factors and determined there was a rational basis for for what the government did in that context. Um, also, this a five four. Whereas on the other side, in regard to the hundred plus mandate, they said this had never been done in history. There was absolutely no tie to Congress, uh, congressional authority in this context, and really um, brought it back to. And actually, you know, once in a while I say this: go go and read. You know, I, I think high school kids and college kids should go and read. Um, the concurrence here that was done by Gorsuch in yep. the 100-plus um, the Band-Aid, because it really gives a good um, explanation of the Constitution and how the role between the federal government, the state government, as well as the branches of government um, have to interact with each other. Um, so that's what it came down to between the two decisions. One can be justified by law as well as um, you know, rational factors. The other one just had absolutely no basis. And as the court said, it's uh, on the 100-plus mandate for the employer mandate. Um, they were using a blunt in- instrument. There is no distinction between industries or actual COVID-19 um, rights in-, in this context. And so that's, that's something that the, the court is- has said before, that you cannot be a blunt instrument if you're a fed- federal government agency. States, you have that authority yeah. because that's given to you in the Constitution. But the federal government, you have to be a scalpel. You have to apply something that's actually been given to you as a right, under the Constitution or a statute, and they didn't have it here.
1: I remember an old Rehnquist line. I think it was the the state used the blunderbuss instead of the rifle sort of sort of sort of a metaphor. Brett, two two other things. Um, I think it was Jonathan Turley who I saw make this point, but if not him, someone on a panel he was with made made the point that in the health care. Decision, The one that was 5-4, it seemed persuasive to Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, that the industry itself didn't push back very hard on this. They didn't. It, I don't know if you've picked up on that or if you had a differing view.
3: I, I agree, and that, I mean, there was a whole paragraph okay. on basically the industry begging okay. for this regulation. Govern me harder, as sense. one of
1: my listeners said, yeah. okay,
3: Right, <laughs> yeah. and, and with, with, which, you know, when you were looking at the other one, the employer mandate, there was, the mm-hmm. industry was on, there was no industry who was pushing it. And right, and, and the fact it was like, hey, you cannot, um, you know, construction workers and construction industry is completely different than the automobile industry and completely different than the healthcare industry, and you just cannot have these blanket um, Obligations, and so that was a major distinction too. I, and it goes to, you know, um, we we sometimes as as people who argue in front of the Supreme Court, uh, we we look at amicus briefs; those are the friends of the court brief, and determine how impactful are they um, on decisions. And in this case, it definitely uh, showed that the Supreme Court does listen to those who are in the know when making decisions. So I think that was an important factor that you pointed
1: out. One other thing is you like to continually shame me. I used to be a lawyer, and um, I remember back in the day when I was, when, when I worked uh, – I never would have been admitted – I never was admitted to. But when I worked for some attorneys that were uh, often in front of the Supreme Court, that, the, the, the thing then was they were always saying, how do we get Kennedy? How do we get O'Connor? They were always looking for those two. I don't love it, but that's what they were doing. Um, sure. is it fair to say vote. now, yeah, the swing votes, is it fair to say now that the, the, that is going to be replaced by Roberts and Kavanaugh? Attorneys are going to think, how do I get Roberts? How do I, Are those the new two moderates or swing votes you have to look for?
3: Yes, definitely okay. the swing votes. And then um, in regard to the conservative majority, if you're trying to play there. You have to look at Justice um, Thomas, and then if you're looking at the liberal votes, you have to look at uh, Justice Beyer, but Breyer. But by, remember, Justice Breyer was appointed by a, a Republican president, so um, he, he's a little bit more of a middle of the road. So the, if, if you're if you're playing um, those kind of calculations, that's that's what you're definitely looking
1: at. This was so helpful, Brett. Thank you very, very much. Two days in a row. Let's hope nothing happens tomorrow. (laughs) Happy to do it. Keep your 344 open on retainer from the Seth (laughs) Leibson show, okay? (laughs) Brett Johnson from Snell and Wilmer, our Robert Jackson Fellow in Constitutional Studies. Bless you, sir, and thank you. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. This is funny and coincidental, a darling companion, uh, Johnny and uh, June Carter Cash. That's from live at San Quentin. Just earlier today, someone was emailing me a video of Johnny Cash live from San Quentin. That was written by John Sebastian, a uh, uh, darling companion, uh, John Sebastian of uh, Love and Spoonful. All right. Richard and Phoenix, how are you, sir?
4: Terrific, Seth. Uh, this is a, um, I'm really glad you're covering the subject. I'm an appellate lawyer. I've written am, uh, amicus briefs oh, good, for good. state and the Supreme Court as well, um, But uh, and, and, and briefs uh, briefs on the merits as well. The, um, the very idea that—I haven't seen the decision yet, so I hate talking about it— but the very idea that a justice would say, I'm going to rule on the absence of an amicus brief from an interest group that wasn't a party before them, are you freaking kidding?
1: I understand the sentiment very well. Yes, you're, you're making a very good point, Richard. You're making a very, so we, very good point.
4: So as, as appellate lawyers, and certainly if you're going in front of the, the, the high courts, yes, you you try to appeal to the justices' sensibilities or their historical rulings and things of that nature. Yeah, yeah, you get that. But... Uh, the, to to um,
1: it's to an abdication of responsibility. It's an abdication exactly. of responsibility. I totally. But but there is a flip side to it. Do you agree with me? There's a flip side for a lot of people that say, "Well, what's the point of an amicus brief?" <laughs> Here's the point of an amicus brief, right?
4: Well, that what that tells you, I think, is what was commented on earlier today, which is the more power is centralized in the in the federal. And the more power centralized in a a room full of five or seven or nine justices, the worse. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I understand that point. Yeah. And do you agree that the the swing votes that they have to appeal to now from the duration of their tenure will be Roberts and uh, Kavanaugh?
4: Yeah. And 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 why? I mean, Uh, I know why.
1: I know why. I think I know why. I don't know as much as you, but I think I know why Uh, they were never that good to begin with, to be honest with you. A- amen on that, okay. and
4: also the very idea that their job was ever to be swayed right. by interest right. As to right, the interpretation of the law. Right,
1: Hello? no, not the job. That's what a legislator's yeah. job is. Yeah, we got it. Uh huh. Thank you. Stan. We're on the same. We're on the same wavelength, Richard. Don't be a stranger. <laughs> right. Call back. Would love your ex- expertise uh, going forward as well. Don't go away. We've got more coverage of this coming right up with the great Jonathan Tobin. We'll be right back.